up? This is Matt Dietz, and this is None of My Business. This is the show where I get to sit down and talk with creative, smart, and bold entrepreneurs who are in the middle of their journey. You know, none of us are given a playbook on how to build a business and how to run a business when we start. And I wanted to start a resource of stories of people who have done it before us so that people who are aspiring or people who are struggling can learn from and get inspiration. That's what this show's about. Today on the show, I have Megan Jones Schleckaway. Megan's story is awesome. So she is the founder and owner of Rooney May and Co. Uh, and so she designs and sells her own clothes for women. And uh, I don't want to give away too much of the story, but you know, her story starts out here in Idaho. She was a rodeo queen. You know, after that had run its course. Um, she went to Seattle and entered the tech scene in like 99. I think you may know what happened then. And she moved to Arizona. Then she went to Texas and Austin and she worked in the music industry for a while. And then she went to Nashville and was in the music industry for a while. And all the while though, you're going to hear all this story, but all the while she's learning and picking up really important things that have really helped make her successful today. So her path has been really interesting and really fun and challenging. And so I can't wait for you to hear what she's picked up along the way and how she brought it home to build her business here. I guess one of the things that I really admire was that she just figured it all out. You know, she did that by aligning with the right people, leaning on her past experiences, making her mistakes, learning from them, adjusting, all the things that we really need to do. So um, thank you, Megan, for coming on. I'm really excited to have everyone hear your story. It's really impressive. And let's just get to it. All right. Well, I am joined today with Megan Jones Schleckaway. Hi, Megan. Hi. How are you? I'm well, thank you. Good. You are the designer and owner and founder of Rooney May & Co., is that correct? That's correct, yep. Very good. Well, why don't you start by telling me, let's tell me a little bit about where you're from and how did you get to Idaho? I like to start, let's, let's just warm up here and get you started. So, uh, where are you from? I'm from here. I was born and raised here. No born kidding. At, born at St. Luke's downtown. Very good. Yeah. So, your parents... Are from here? Uh, they they both are transplants. My parents are from the Midwest. My mom was from South Dakota. My dad was from Iowa. They met here. Okay. My dad was a, a beat cop in the seventies here. Wow. And my mom worked at an ice cream shop, and it was just fate, I guess. Awesome. So yeah, my whole family's uh, been here since I think the fifties, sixties. Okay. My, my mom's family moved here in the fifties. My dad came here in the early seventies. Have things changed here since then? Yeah, yeah a little bit. <laughs> a little bit. I grew up in Eagle when it was the country, and probably nobody knows what that's like. But right. It was, there was one grocery store that you would go to, and you, if you forgot something, that was it. You didn't go back. It was yeah. one trip into town. Yeah, I hear, story, I hear stories all the time, because my wife isn't... Is an Idahoan and she's from here and her, her, she goes, like, she's sixth generation. And so mm-hmm. I hear stories all the time where, like, like this was old, like, yeah, the, old this State is old Street. State Street. <laughs> it used to be State Street and yeah. there used to be farms for days and now it's totally changed. Yeah, so. we used to shop at this Orville Jackson's and buy actual, like, horseshoes and feed and things. <laughs> right. And now it's a bar. And now it's a bar. <laughs> now it's a bar. I'm glad it's still there. That's yeah. kind of nice. All right, so tell me a little bit about what you're doing today. Tell me about Rooney May & Co., and then we'll go back and we'll build okay. the story. Uh, Rooney May & Co., so I am the designer uh, and founder of Rooney May & Co., which previously it was all custom dresses, mostly dresses. Now we're doing um, more ready-to-wear pieces. Some are dresses, some are jumpsuits. We're playing with a lot of separates. 
going to be getting into swimwear. So now it's more of a retail shop uh, with ready-to-wear pieces. I do still do special event and custom as well. And you have a physical location. I do. I have a brick-and-mortar store downtown in Bodo, which is at 8th and Broad. So if you know where P.F. Chang's is or Bodovino, we're right in that intersection. Yeah, it's beautiful little space down there. Thank you. How long have you been there? I got that shop in 2015, so I've been there since then. Okay. All right, so let's take it back. Mm -hmm. All right, so how did you get into your love of design? Uh, Let's start start there. This is a good story, so I want you to tell it. (laughs) (laughs) I was a rodeo queen when I was in high school. Right. And um, prior to that, actually, I had shown horses since I was, you know, three or four years old. And being in the show ring, it's kind of important to always stand out. So my mom and I would collaborate on different outfits for the show ring or for stage when I was in pageants. And uh, we watched a lot of old movies, too. So there's kind of this mix of old Hollywood glamour with the Western lifestyle with this really polished, you know, show ring kind of ready look. And the the whole point is to stand out and to be flattering. So mm-hmm. I guess that all kind of meshed together. And when we couldn't find what we wanted here in Boise, which not surprising to a lot of people. There's not a lot of options for shopping. So we would just decide to make things. And my mom was a great seamstress. So we would, um, I would design things and sketch them and bring them to her. So, and how old were you when you were doing this? Um, probably 12, 13, 14 is when I started sketching. That's amazing. Yeah. It was fun. So you would, you guys would watch old movies and Mm -hmm. that looks nice and that looks cool. And and then you would sketch it up and your mom would make it. Yeah. We'd go to the fabric stores together and try to find, if we couldn't find a pattern that was similar, but then we would take a pattern and she would modify it a little bit. And yeah, it was just a lot of trial and error because she wasn't, formally trained either she was just good at it because she'd always made us clothes yeah i was gonna ask how did she learn how to do that just maybe something passed down from her mom yeah. and so on i think back in the day everybody took home ec and that was right. that was a big thing in the 60s and uh she she was a very good artist as well so she was always in into something creative and i think that was just another passion for her well, that's amazing yeah. when did you get into you know that portion where you were designing and your mom was making, when did you get into the making portion or did she teach you along the way or like, how did, how did you learn how to do that? No, I learned nothing. You learned nothing. I I never (laughs) sewed when I was a kid. I was always in the barn. I was always training horses and I could shoe a horse or trim a horse's feet or, you know, do all of the things, giving shots and training. Um, I could not sew. I had no domestic skills at that point. Did you want to? I was such a tomboy. No. No. No, I was a tomboy. I wanted to be John Wayne. (laughs) (laughs) I just happened to be uh, doing rodeo. And it was funny. I went from being a tomboy to being a rodeo queen in one weekend. That's interesting. Tell me about that weekend. um, I entered a pageant kind of on a dare. and (laughs) (laughs) And somehow I won it. And... I say that laughingly because I showed up with the worst clothes. I had no idea what I was doing. I was a I was a good horseman. I knew about horses, so I was confident in that. But the rest of it, the modeling, the the public speaking, I had knew nothing. So I'm very shocked that I won it. But I think my horsemanship skills were high enough um, that it kind of evened out. Yeah, that's amazing. <laughs> so I was like, oh, I guess I'm a rodeo queen now. Did you, what was that transition like? Were you stoked? Were you, were you excited? Is it something that you had kind of thought you would end up doing or were you just kind of plopped into the middle of it and like, here I am? I had always loved watching rodeo queens when I was a little kid. A lot of little girls do when they go to their rodeos. Um, so I always thought they were amazing, but I was just, that wasn't really my 
scene, I guess. I was just, I was more of a competitor, a tomboy. Yeah. Um, so when I won that pageant, uh, I was lucky enough that one of the girls that won the age category above me mentored me. Okay. And she, her name is Shelly, and we ended up traveling together for years after that. But she took me aside and said, I will help you. I will help you. <laughs> I will turn you into a girl, I <laughs> promise. She was like, come to my house. I'll teach you how to curl your hair, all the things. So, yeah, basically in a weekend I went from being, I was already in horses and competing, but then I was now doing girly stuff in pageants. And it was thrilling, yeah. but terrifying. How long did you do that? Four years. So okay. I did it all through high school. And then uh, my final senior year of high school, I was Miss Teen Rodeo Idaho. So I won the state pageant. Awesome. My mentor, Shelly, was Miss Rodeo Idaho the same year. What a pair. And then she went on to win Miss Rodeo America. So she was a great mentor. Awesome. And uh, that was the best year. We traveled all over the country. And, you know, it's it's like the greatest sport. I don't know if anybody wants to know more about it. Hit me up. I will tell you all the things about rodeo. It is amazing. <laughs> That's awesome. Yeah. All right. So your path to where you are today between when you, you know, were ending your rodeo career and, you know, selling your clothes is really interesting. Mm -hmm. Um, So you moved around quite a little bit. You found yourself in the music industry you were in the tech industry. Um, So tell me about your path. Like you, you went from here to Seattle. Is that right? Kind of. Sort of. No. No. Well, I I ended up in Seattle. So I stopped being, uh, I stopped rodeoing when I graduated high school because I was going to go to school in California. Mm -hmm. Um, So I was all set to do that. That's when I sold my wardrobe that my mom and I had made, which was a pretty big deal because a lot of the pieces we'd made um, were pretty risk-taking. I mean, we we did a lot of -of out-of-the-box kinds of things. Mm -hmm. So it was cool that everybody else wanted to buy them. And so I sold that wardrobe and kind of took that money to the school I was going to. Um, so I went to Biola in Southern California, which is a private university. And I only spent a semester down there, but it was, it was just not meant to be. What were you, what were you planning on studying? I was planning on studying communications and then I was going to go into psychology. Okay. Okay. (laughs) (laughs) And then, so that didn't work out. And I, because my parents got divorced that year. So then I came home. That was a lot of adversity as far as, you know, trying to keep your mind on studies sure. and things. So I came home for a minute and then I ended up moving to Seattle to work in tech. Yeah. And that was just a luck of the draw. I was a receptionist candidate for a temp agency and then they put me in this tech company in Seattle and I loved it. You were in tech in a very interesting time in yeah. history, really. Yeah. So was this 98, 90, yeah, 99. 99. I mean, this was the peak. This was when it was cresting. Yeah. Yes, it was amazing. What was that like for you? It was like the coolest company I've ever been at and the best job. Yeah. Um, everybody was excited. There was so much growth. And I think that's probably where I started falling in love with business and commerce because coming from a rodeo background, I was really not sure what I wanted and I saw the potential there and the company I worked for was, um, a pioneer of VPN technology. So we were working with one of our clients was the NASDAQ and Bill Gates was one of our clients. So we would meet all these pretty, um, huge players in the tech industry and I was only 19 years old. So that was really it was an interesting uh, foray. Plus, it was just a great company to work for. So Yeah, so you were there when it was at its peak. Yep. And it crashed pretty suddenly and yes. fiercely, right? right and so what was what was that like? Uh, you didn't have a job for a long no, time, it right? A, so, it was a bloodbath in Seattle. It was yeah. awful. Everybody was getting laid off. 
Um, I think our company went from, I was, I was employee number 209 when I first got started at this uh, tech company. By the end of that same year, when it was still growing, I think that we had 3,000 employees. Oh, my God. So the growth was intense. And all over the world, too. So we had, you know, company had grown everywhere. I was supposed to be transferring to London during oh. this time. So I was 20, I think I was 21. And I was going to be transferred to London to be the office manager at that new branch, which was pretty exciting. Absolutely, yeah. And then everything started to crash. And then they we had not only hiring freezes, so obviously that transfer got halted, but um, just layoff after layoff. And so we had probably three rounds of layoffs, and I, I remember requesting <laughs> to be in the final round. It was awful. <laughs> well, know. what happened after that? After that, um, everybody in Seattle was looking for work. Right. So... There was no jobs. I was unemployed for probably eight months, searching for jobs, nothing available, not even waitressing jobs. So, um, oh my God. I, I got a call from a girlfriend that I had rodeoed with, and she was in Arizona. Actually, her family called me and said, what are you doing? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Absolutely not nothing. much. So they said, how would you like to move to Arizona? Um, and they had an opportunity. She wanted to get a house together. And I thought, sure. Yes. Yeah. Why not? All right. I'm, I'm ready to be done with the rain anyway, so another drastic change going That's to That's a big Phoenix. change, yeah. <laughs> so what did you move down to Arizona for? Literally just to have a job because there was nothing else going on. I didn't. I wasn't prepared at that point to come back to Boise, mm-hmm. so I wanted to see more yeah. what was out there. I was really excited from the company in Seattle. So I went to Phoenix, which was doing well. Um, there was a lot of jobs, a lot of opportunities. So I worked... Um, at another tech company there. They built uh, LCDs. Mm-hmm. And so it was more of a manufacturing facility kind of thing. We had plants in Malaysia. Um, so I worked in tech. I also bartended. And I also worked at a recording studio right. called The Salt Mine. And I just did, I volunteered basically there to do marketing for them, kind of as a receptionist for them on my free time, just because I wanted to learn more about the music industry. And that's when I started Identifying, I guess, as a singer, saying I wanted to wanted to sing. So. Yeah, so I want to get to that in yeah. a sec. But I am curious for your time and see how long did you live in Seattle? Was it a couple years? A couple years. I was there from ninety nine to two thousand two. Okay. Um, would you? What did you learn in Seattle? Yeah, with that oh. whole experience. Uh, I learned a lot. I learned that you can do a lot. Like this huge company I was working for that had been super successful started with a couple guys in a garage, basically. It was kind of a similar tech story that everybody's heard, but right. that's really how it happened. And uh, like some of the C-level executives were just in the right place at the right time during this startup. So one of our, I think our CMO was 26 or 27. And he Sounds just, about right. you know, like right place, right time, ready to take a risk and right out of college. So I think it taught me that you don't have to always take the safe path. And obviously it was a rocky road, but um, I think he ended up retiring and moving to Tuscany for a few years. So it wasn't the worst path, you know? So you learned a little bit about risk. Yeah. I knew nothing about um, starting companies coming from here. My my family is very blue collar, so nobody had ever done that. And you must have learned some adversity as well. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. So you wind up in Arizona and then you wind up with your toe in the music industry. I did. Like, did you always knew you had that gift? Were you musical growing up? Did you play an instrument? Like how, like, how did you, 
how did you kind of <laughs> land in that? It's it's, an, it's a tough industry, you know, to spend any time and, you know, with success. So I'm curious. I had always had a knack. Um, I had really good pitch. I was always in choir. I always mm-hmm. sang in choir. Um, we did competitions through that, through my private school that I went to. And I went to Coal Valley Christian before it was Coal Valley Christian. Right. Um, and that, you know, singing in church, singing in choir, doing all the musicals and things that go along with being in private school. I think they they do probably a lot more. And, um, I played a few instruments. I dabbled, but I was always more interested in riding horses. So I didn't practice as much as yeah. I should have, but I did always have a knack for it. And, um, actually it was when I was in Seattle, I, our CEO walked by my desk and said, would you like to go to the phantom phantom of the opera? Sure. He had extra tickets. He couldn't go. So he's like, here, take your boyfriend. Mm-hmm. And I got to go sit like sixth row at it's Fifth Avenue Theater in downtown Seattle. Yeah. It's an amazing theater. Saw Phantom. It blew me away. I'd never seen a production like that. And I thought, okay. After being a rodeo queen and being on stage, I loved that. Um, and I thought, oh, I wonder if I could sing and, and do that and see if I can hone that skill. So I started thinking about it. And then when I got to Phoenix, I said, I'm going to actually see what I can do. There you go. Yeah. So how did you start? Um, like you said, you started. You working. You were working in a studio. I was working in a recording studio because I knew I wanted to be around music and learn it. What were you doing in the studio? I was doing marketing, uh, writing emails a lot. Um, we would reach out to bands that were touring through to see if they needed a recording space mm-hmm. while they were touring. Um, I w- and then they ended up saying, "Well, you sing, right?" And I was like, "Oh yeah, of course." <laughs> Even though I had it, <laughs> so hey, come sing on this thing. And so they would drag me into the studio out of the office, and I would end up singing a part. So I started doing a lot of studio recording, um, just on the fly because, yeah, it was there. I sang karaoke with my workmates when we'd get off work. That was about <laughs> that was the extent of it. But karaoke in Phoenix was pretty competitive. <laughs> You would go to these places that had huge crowds. Sure. So it was kind of, um, one of my bosses was a Broadway singer, and he said, you know, this is a great way to get over your stage fright. And That's said, interesting. Okay, okay, yeah. I'll try it. So I did. All right. So how long were you in Phoenix? Because you end up in Austin? Yep. Yeah. So I moved, um, I was in Phoenix from 2002 to 2005. So okay, three years. So three years there. Almost four, I think. And then you make the jump to Austin. Yep. And that was because of music. Yeah. So when I was in Phoenix... I was in tech, and one of my friends in the music business in Phoenix that I was trying to break into was in. I was in all these other bands, but we never actually performed. It was the funniest thing. We just we just rehearsed a lot, <laughs> so I met a lot of people that were recording and doing the same kinds of things I wanted to do, but never really came to fruition. Yeah. Um, one guy introduced me to his brother, who was a producer, and he said he could help you because I was writing songs and things. So on the weekends, I would go to Hollywood. Silver Lake and record with this producer and then I would come back Monday morning for my day job which was a tech job so nobody knew that I was leaving on the yeah. weekends to record so I just I did that for about a year got L- a record living a double life yeah I did yeah. I, I never told anybody I was doing it and so I had this whole record finished um, and my producer said you need to go to Austin or Nashville and I said, I really don't want to go to Nashville because I liked the music that I heard coming out of Austin. Mm-hmm. There was a lot of Texas country Americana that was different from what you would hear on the radio, mm-hmm. um, more independent, mm-hmm. more grassroots. And that's what I liked. And he said, Psh, that's never going to go anywhere. I said, well, I want to go try. Yeah. So I was 25. And yeah, I just 
gave my two weeks notice and said, I'm moving to Texas to to be a singer. And they were like, what? (laughs) (laughs) Did you know anyone there? You had some connections, right? Some loose connections? Some very loose connections. Um, It was all through internet, like forums. Wow. There was this, um, because of the Texas music scene, it's very grassroots and Americana scene, Red Dirt is now what they call it as well. And they, uh, so they had all these forums and they had kind of adopted me onto their forum because I was recording and it was that style of music, even though it was coming out of Hollywood, they didn't seem to care. They were very kind to me. They're like, she's not really a Texan, but so she can be on this Texas forum. And so I came, I would go back and forth from Phoenix to Texas to go to these uh, music festivals Mm -hmm. just as a visitor. And so people would recognize me like, hey, aren't you Megan? Aren't you the Mm -hmm. girl that's recording from... It was just weird. It was like, I wasn't doing anything really legitimate, but because I had started the process, I think people wanted to know me. And um, that was kind of fun. So So you were learning about networking. Yep. Even though you probably didn't have put that term to it, you know, you were just making good connections in the right right places. Yeah. So through that forum, a a band uh, that I was friends with, basically just virtually, said, well, you can come sing with us if you can get here by this date, August something. Um, we're going on this small tour in North Texas. I was like, okay. Done. So I just, that was my timeline and I dropped everything and I had horses at the time too. So I moved those with me to Texas and perfect. It was quite the caravan. All right. So we're getting closer to where you start designing right on your own. Mm-hmm. So I want to kind of make the jump to that. So it's when in Austin, you took what you had learned with design and you're working in a totally different industry than rodeo, mm-hmm. of course, but there's still, it's still an entertainment, right? Sure. And so talk to me about how you bridge that gap from what you were doing or what you had learned into creating, you know, outfits or, mm-hmm. you know, costumes for, uh, for the music industry. So I think this was around 2000, I want to say seven, eight, somewhere around there. I'd moved to Texas in 2005, and I was renting this house in probably 2007 with a bunch of other musicians. And at the time, Project Runway had just started Uh on TV, and that was a big deal. At least that's when I first became aware of it. And I was really enthralled by this because these they were showing people doing garment construction. They were showing these steps, and I thought, that's so cool. That's what my mom used to do. These kids are like rock stars. And they were making really interesting pieces, and I thought I could do that. Because, again, I was coming up against this uh, wall of not being able to find pieces that I I wanted to wear. Like, I had an idea of what I wanted to wear on stage, but I couldn't do it. Since I had already done that with my mom years ago, I thought maybe I can just figure it out myself. So I started just literally goofing around, probably ruining my sewing machine, doing all the wrong things, right. but not knowing anything. And everything's available on YouTube if you really look it up. So I started just looking up things and reading as much as I could, but I didn't have any resources. So it was just trial and error. So we were designing for yourself just in the beginning. Designing for myself. Um, I had a really competitive group of girlfriends that yeah. were also creatives, they yeah. were graphic designers. So we would do these Halloween competitions. Okay. So our costumes got really ridiculous, <laughs> and that's it would start months in advance. <laughs> so we you're would, like Halloween's ninety days out. <laughs> you ready? That's no joke. We would literally <laughs> do. We would pick a theme for this costume contest, and then it would go for the whole summer. Fun. And then so it was this big unveiling. So it was kind of like our own little project runway, sure. and uh, we we were just all learning and playing around. 
So you're totally self-taught, mm-hmm. right? You start designing for yourself. When did you start? When did you sell your first dress? Like somebody must have noticed what you're wearing and liked what you were wearing and said, where did you get that? And I'm sure you said, well, I made it. And they said, well, can you make me something? Like mm-hmm. what was that experience like sure. for you? And then how did you capitalize on that? Like, was it fast? Did it just walk me through what that was like when you started making, you know, um, outfits kind of more mm-hmm. regularly? Um, I think one of the first pieces I sold that was substantial was one of the costumes, one of the Halloween costumes, because after a few years, they're just taking up a lot of space. <laughs> yeah. So I, I had made a replica of this, uh, it's Interview with a Vampire, this red dress that oh God, Nina, we just Nina wears, that. Yeah. The, the big red gown. I made that. And okay. so I was just like, where am I going to wear this again? You know, obviously <laughs> it was cool. But um, so I, because I was trying to learn to sew, I had discovered Etsy, which is where you can buy a lot of materials that you need. And I thought, well, maybe I should sell it on Etsy. So I put it up there thinking, I'm just going to stick a ridiculous price tag on it and no one will ever pay it. Yeah. But it took me two months to make this. Sure. So I put it up and it sold within a day. Oh my and God. I was like, whoa. You're like, what is this okay. world I've stumbled upon, okay. right? Yeah, I was like, I don't actually know if I even constructed this correctly. I'm sure I didn't. Like, don't look at the underside. <laughs> don't look at the seams. It looks good on the outside. But, um, yeah, people were willing to pay money for it because it was unique and different. And I think I even explained to the girl, like, this is my first big, you know, costume. She's like, I don't care. So I started posting more things. And I had a friend. It always ended up being, like, a friend would ask me to make something. And then I would make it. If I was conscious enough to take a picture of it, I would do that and then post that on Etsy and just Mm -hmm. see what people thought of it. Um, And that's what happened. I had a girlfriend that wanted a dress for a wedding. And she said, hey everybody's wearing these infinity dresses. Uh, can you make me one? I'd never even heard that phrase. <laughs> but sure. you said yes. I was like, sure, I'm sure yeah. I can figure it out. Because she was really tall, and so she couldn't find anything long enough. So she's like, all the dresses they have are too short. So can you make me one in navy blue? Sure. So I made her one. I looked it up, figured out what it was, got it on YouTube, right. <laughs> figured out how to make it, um, made it, and then posted it on Etsy and had no idea that I had just stumbled onto like a vein of gold. I had no idea. So the bridal community on Etsy found me, realized I could make infinity dresses and it was just off to the races. It was on. It's interesting. You really were using newer tools in, in the world of business, you know, like YouTube and Etsy. They were really still in their infancy back at this time. Like Mm -hmm. YouTube would probably, it's nothing like it is today. Mm -hmm. YouTube's the second largest search engine in the world today. You know, Etsy was like a prehistoric, you know, you know, uh, sales portal. You know, eBay was still very new at the time. Mm -hmm. And these, you know, the internet in itself was still only like 10 or 12 years old, you know, in mass at this time. So I think it's interesting that, you know, you found these resources and really use them as Mm -hmm. a spring board for your business which is incredible yeah. um, I'm one of those kids that grew up with um, in the analog age yeah. but then about high school is when you know AOL came out I know and so the internet was this new thing and yeah. I think I had a cell phone when I was 16 and mm-hmm. none of my friends did because um, I was traveling all the time yeah. and uh, yeah so I was really always really into technology yeah it's really exciting it was and being was- in the tech industry only made that 10 times more robust because I really just wanted to learn everything. Yeah. I I think there's, you're in that generation that remembers what life was like before Mm -hmm. and after. And like, cause that's where I am. I'm a total 
Gen Xer. And mm-hmm. so I remember what it was like, you know, and watching sci-fi movies and doing mm-hmm. all that. And now all of the things that we're, we've been watching in sci-fi movies are showing up like in our life. And it was yeah. so, it was very exciting. It was new. It was stuff that we didn't ever think was possible Absolutely. and so and all of a sudden it's here and I'm the same way I love anything with a screen and a button like yeah. I will buy you know mm-hmm. and I will try and implement it however I can because I just think it's it's magic I don't know mm-hmm. how any of it works but yeah. I think it's incredible and the tools that can be used from a business I mean people are building billion dollar companies off of these things Absolutely. and stuff like that so I think it's incredible yeah so so now you're you're on Etsy mm-hmm. you're selling a bunch of dresses um unbeknownst to me it just sort of kept happening i hate saying it that way but it just kept happening and i was like okay when did you make the what but you were still working primarily in music Mm -hmm. so when did that flip when did it go you know what i think i think i'm going to go into you know design Mm -hmm. primarily instead of music like what was that what was that time like and how did that decision get made my main career was music i was also married to a musician at the time he was a producer and engineer um also played bass we toured together in several different bands so i was really focused on that but this design thing i was doing was sort of i was just doing it on my own everyone else in my world was a musician essentially so when i got divorced in 2012 i was like okay now I have to make this work. It's yeah. not just a hobby. And this is my, this is literally my only safety net right now because I was getting out of the music scene. And when you are, when you are working with your spouse, you kind of lose what somebody's going to win all the friends basically all right. and all that traction. So I decided um, to step away. I moved to Nashville and that's when I moved to Nashville. And uh, I was still in music because I had connections there, but I would start realizing, I was doing the math, like my business on Etsy was growing and going crazy. And every time I'd go out on tour for the weekend and get paid, you know, $100 to do a four-hour show, (laughs) I would be making sales on Etsy. So every time we'd have a break, I'd look at my phone and I, you know, I'd make $1,000 just on Etsy. So I thought if I stay home and sew, I could probably make more money. And at that point, going through a divorce was really... It rocked me, so I wanted to have more security, and I think that's what started the transition. So it sounds funny to, like, being an entrepreneur and starting your own business is more security, but when you compare it with the music industry, it yeah. is, it's a little bit more stable. Yeah. So I think that was when I made the decision was about 2012 or 13. Okay. So I was in Nashville. I was still in music, but the band I was in at that point was based in New York, hmm. of all places. So our manager and all of our rhythm section were in New York, in Brooklyn and in Chelsea. So we would go stay up there once a month, rehearse, and I would go, all the guys would go play and I would go to the garment district right. with fabric. <laughs> I was going to ask you, how did you take advantage of your time oh, yeah. in New York? I would I would wear my feet out just walking around buying fabric and shipping it all home or bringing an extra suitcase and grabbing things because it was so cool to be able to be right there right in the middle of it and get whatever I needed. So that yeah. was fun. How did you learn what you needed to learn when it came to fabric and you know, what places to go to and where to get the best deals and what fabric was going to work? I mean, you're totally a story at the school of hard knocks, right? Yeah. You didn't go to, you didn't study this stuff. You learned it on your own. So, you know, how did you, you know, learn your craft on the ground that way? I literally learned it as I went. I mean, 
the funny thing about the, the garment district was, at least the one in New York, it's primarily um, Middle Eastern guys that run these shops. And some of them are kinder to women than others. I'll put it that way. Sure. Um, and some were helpful and would answer my questions. Some wouldn't even talk to me. So I would come back month after month after month, and finally they would sell to me. I mean, they literally wouldn't even wow. open the door. Because they're like, no, you're not buying enough, and uh, you don't know what you're doing. So I remember my first buying trip to New York, and I literally sat on the sidewalk and just cried because it was overwhelming. I didn't know where to go or what to do, and there's a a million options. So what if I spend my $1,000 budget on the wrong things that nobody wants? And so it's just things like that where you have to trust your gut and... Were you getting any help or any direction? Did you have anyone that was like, that you could ask, you know, like, where should I go? What should I do? Or are you just doing it all on your own? With regards to New York, no, I kind of just figured that out. But I did have a mentor in Austin um, who was a designer and he owned a fabric store. So I worked for him occasionally when I was in Austin and he would go buy fabric in LA. So that's how I initially met him was, I would say, I, I have a bridesmaid's dress order. They want this color, and he'd go source it for me. Okay. So he was sort of the middleman, and then I just ended up doing it myself in New York. But I guess I did learn a bit about that, but you really, it's weird. It's not like you go to a department store. You just have to go to these warehouse districts and wander through. So it took about, I did that for about 10 years. I mean, I wow. still love to go to New York all the time, but now I have my places picked out, and I know right. who to talk to. But in the beginning, you're just making... Your own introductions. God, what kept you going? It <laughs> <That> sounds hard, <laughs> you know. Fear. I mean, you obviously, yeah, fear, right? That's that's a that's a main I, I was motivator for all of us. If I didn't, so yeah. I mean, were you enjoying it? Yeah. What, did you do you I enjoy the it. challenge? Mm-hmm. Was it like I'm going to figure this out? Yep. You know, hell or high water. Yep. You don't seem to me to be the type of person that's like, well, if this doesn't work out, then I'm just going to go and get a job somewhere else. Like, you really. You have like some internal, you know, compass Mm -hmm. that's on fire, you know, that is pointing you in the right direction. You know, where does that come from? Like what kept you going? Did you feel like you needed to prove something to yourself? Like I'm going to make this, you know, just work by blunt force trauma. Like I'm going to, I'm going to prove to everybody (laughs) I can do it. Were you trying to prove it to yourself? Were you trying to prove it to others? Like what, what was this fire? Like where did it come from? I'm not sure if it was a direction or something that I had looked at and said, this is where I want to go. I didn't have a goal. I just knew that I wasn't going to fail at it. And it was something that I got so much gratification out of. And music was one thing. It was a creative outlet that I loved and I do love music and I miss that performance, but the industry of music I did not like. And that, that burned me out after about 10 years. So, uh, the, the business, it's just heartbreaking. And so with, with dresses, I could literally make something in a day or a weekend and it would be somebody's wedding dress. And then I thought, you know, they're going to be displaying this on their wall their entire lives. Yeah. It's going to be in their family albums. Their grandkids are going to look at this. And that's my, that's my contribution to their most special moments. So when I was getting to do things like that, it was really special. And it was just very gratifying. I love figuring things out. I think that's just how my brain works. Um, that's why I, I did well in tech. I ran a help desk because I just like figuring out problems. Um, being good at things is good is a big motivator for me. Um, but I was always also very competitive my whole life. So I think it was that self motivation of like if I if I just keep pushing at this, I'm gonna get to this level, this next level where I can call the shots or I can own my own business. 
and feel like it's a real business and not uh, just an online presence. But I don't know. I think it was literally just I had never given myself the option to fail. It was not going to fail. That's great. What a gift. I mean, you have such a mix of of things that have helped you become successful. You know, you said you're competitive. Your willingness to figure things out on your own mm-hmm. is something that not everybody has. Um, and your willingness to not even see failure as an option. Like, these things are a wonderful cocktail to get you to where you are today. And so... Um, I think it's a compulsion to not to, to not want to ask for help is part of it. It's probably a big failing. I just like figuring things out. You yeah. Know? And it's a problem solver. Yeah. And then and then the empathy side too, like the mm-hmm. and, and there's an emotional tie to it as well. Like you feel very responsible for creating this piece of art really that somebody's going to be showing, like you said, in family albums or on their on their wall for fifty years or something like that. Like you're really mm-hmm. you're displayed in people's homes for their whole life, you know, and so that has and and you take that very seriously and so just you have you have a great mix of characteristics that have got you to where you are today where when did you move back home so i was in nashville for two years and it was that time really crystallized i think i i started with that by saying that that crystallized my vision for if i stay home and don't tour then I can actually make money and make this a real business. Yeah. And so it was about that time that I started really um, just full on. Like I was working in my basement <laughs> in Nashville. And uh, yeah, I, I literally, it was an unfinished basement and I had put up, um, you know, those corrugated tin mm-hmm. panels yep. because I was trying to keep it clean down there. Yeah. And, and handy that they're also magnetic. So I had patterns all over the walls with magnets so I just kind of converted this space and made that my workspace and I was working 16 hours a day it was crazy yeah. but it was great too because I could also listen to music the whole time or I could watch a movie or a podcast so I was feeding right. my my soul and my brain at the same time I was creating all these dresses and the money just went it just went nuts like I was making so much that I was surprised yeah so that was that was a big piece of my uh, motivation. If I think if I hadn't ever been successful or gotten that big rush on Etsy, I don't think it would have been worth it for me. Yeah. But I saw that potential and I was like, okay, I need to stay in this flow. Yeah, and you realize at some point that you weren't tied to any location. Right. You know, if you did this 30 years ago, you would have been screwed, yep. really. Yeah. You would have had to been doing you would have been building you know, your business on the ground in whatever town you were in, you know, unless you I guess you know, went the catalog route and I have no idea what that looks like, you know, back 30 years ago, mm-hmm. but, um, I'm sure that has its own challenges and expect you wouldn't have been able to afford it probably, right. you know, how are you going to mail out 10,000 catalogs? You know, that's, right. that's expensive or yeah. even to be in them, you probably had to pay. So, you know, you came, you did this at a time where it was possible to do, you know, remote work where it's, it's very different today. But back then yeah. I know you realized you could do this anywhere. What triggered your, your move back home? So during the 2012 divorce era, I came back to Boise for a few months uh, just to kind of get my feet back on my, under me. And at that point, um, luckily, my sister-in-law had also already been sewing for me. She had two little kids and she was kind of bored at home. So um, I would ship her fabric and patterns and she would make some of the bridesmaids dress. And I think she, for about two, three years, probably took on a good chunk, probably 15 or 20% of my orders. And so that was a nice system. Sure. So I had already built out her home studio 
exactly the way I would have built mine. Mm-hmm. And so that just worked because I could go visit my family and still take orders with me. Yeah. Like my clients never knew right. where their dresses were being made, <laughs> they don't but care. I was making them. Yeah. And so I would, I would literally drive to Idaho from Texas or Nashville and bring fabric up and make dresses, ship them out and then, you know, go about my day. But it was, yeah, it was a very, <laughs> it's a lot of stuff to carry with you. Yeah. But, um, so I moved back to Idaho for a couple months and they, my family, I think really wanted me to come home. And then just that period of time, I thought, this is a much easier life. It's just nice here. Yeah. It's calm. It's a beautiful place. I feel like I'm home, mm-hmm. you know, and I loved being a gypsy and moving all around, but I missed doing all the normal things too. Yeah. And, and going to the hot springs and going, um, you know, to all the places we hung out as kids and just up to McCall. I mean, all these places where I'd never found that in other cities. I'd never found these little pieces of home, Mm -hmm. I guess. And so when I came back, I would come back and say I was staying for a week and I'd stay for a month. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) So they said, why don't you just consider coming home? Yeah. So then you mean, I don't blame you. This is, I've lived in many different places too. And this is home for me now, a hundred percent. So, um, so now you're working from home. What year did what year did you move back? I moved back to Idaho in 2014. All right, and you push all your chips in, and you're mm-hmm. like, all right, I'm going to do I, this full time now. I rented a little house on 18th and Idaho. Okay, a little 1936 bungalow that's never been updated with an attic. With an attic, yeah. And I, <laughs> my sister-in-law had measured all of my because uh, I was in Nashville at the time when I was getting ready to move back here. So I thought, I need a space that's big enough for this giant cutting table that I have and all my machines. So she was up, you know, measuring and measuring and measuring and measuring and sending back and forth. Okay, I think it's going to fit because my table is gigantic. So it took up an entire room of this attic. Like literally like there's table. a foot around the edge. It's like a conference, massive conference table. Yes, it's 66 by 96. Oh <laughs> and, and then it's got a bunch of fabric storage underneath. So it weighs probably a metric ton. Oh my God. And um, so yeah. That's amazing. <laughs> How did you get it? Did you build it up there in pieces? I had to rebuild it. Yeah, yeah. I built it initially in Nashville, and then um, I designed it and built it, and then we took it apart a couple times. So, oh my God. yeah. All right. So, is your is your business primarily Etsy? Now? No, back oh, then. Back then, still yes. Yeah. So 2015, it's all Etsy. So I'm just hiding in my attic sewing. Yeah. <laughs> I made the most money I've ever made on Etsy that year. I think or the that year or the next year. All right. So let's talk a little bit about Etsy because I think a couple years, you know, fast forward a couple years, mm-hmm. something happened with Etsy mm-hmm. and your orders dropped significantly overnight. Mm-hmm. And this is not uncommon. Like the big companies where we're doing all this from, as the tech industry has evolved and become more pay to play, you know, Google Ads. Facebook ads, all these things were happening during this period of time between like 08 and 15 and 17. All these companies were growing up around us and doing things differently. You know, it was like the Wild West for a while. Like mm-hmm. Facebook was an incredible place in the beginning. It was all organic growth. And, yeah. um, and Google was the same way. Like you could buy Google AdWords for, yeah. for nothing. And then everything changed once they went public, mm-hmm. I think. And now they have to show profits and yep. there's a board answer to and stuff like that. And you got kind of caught in this. Um, mm-hmm. So talk to me about what happened when you realized it. <laughs> what kind of, was there? a So, yeah, talk me through this, this Etsy decline and then how you responded. So I... Let's see. I had been working with brides 
primarily on Etsy doing bridesmaids dresses and some wedding dresses since 2009, I think. So at this point, 2015, I had a pretty good system and I, I knew that I was going to have a really big rush probably from the first of the year to August or September. And then it would slow down a little bit in the winter because there's just fewer weddings. Yeah. And, um, this particular year, I think it was 2017, I was used to ramping up for my big rush of orders and I knew I was going to be booked out 12 weeks because I was making, I, I could make over a dozen dresses a day wow. by myself. I mean, that's nuts, but that was a long day. Yeah. But I could do it if I, if I need to fill an order quickly. So I would just stack my schedule like crazy. I did nothing but so. Oh. And <clears throat> all of a sudden, I, I want to say it was March <clears throat> and I went from my my March of 2017, I think I had $10,000 in sales on Etsy, which was pretty standard for that time of year. And then April was $700. $700. Yeah, it disappeared. And all my emails started slowing down. All my brides coming in slowed down. It was just like, it, I just disappeared. Yeah. And it never came back. So I'd had slumps before where maybe there was just an off month and orders would get placed, you know, the first of the following month or something. And so I, I never really had more than a two month, uh, down, <laughs> downturn, but this just never came back. Did you ever, day. did you ever, were you ever afraid that was going to happen? Did you even think that was even possible? I mean, you yeah. had kind of green sky or blue skies for a long time. Were you ever like, God, I hope that this, mm -hmm. I hope that we can, you know, maintain this. Or were you ever like, God, if Etsy ever went away, like we'd mm -hmm. be in a world of hurt. Did you ever, did you ever have that fear? Did you ever plan on like what would happen if that happened? I never planned, but I did always have the fear that, um, well, I, maybe it wasn't a fear so much as an awareness. I knew that I was on this wave and, and with music, I had kind of learned that too. Like you can be on a high and have a hit song for a while or something like that. And you have all this momentum and then it just kind of fades. Yeah. So I knew that I was on that kind of a wave. I didn't have any delusions of thinking that that was going to last forever, but I was just trying to get as much out of that as I could and keep the momentum going and keep filling as many orders as I could. But um, I didn't expect it to turn quite so quickly. Yeah. So that I really was caught off guard. And what was your response? Just panic. I mean, I didn't, I didn't really have a response other than, okay, <laughs> okay, <laughs> what next? And at that point I had just gotten my storefront mm -hmm. when that all happened. And so well, that's scary too. For the first new time, bills. yeah, for the first time I had all this overhead, which I'd never done. Right. I always worked out of my attic or my basement or mm -hmm. garage or whatever. And now I had this beautiful storefront, but I was like, Oh no. Oh, right. Okay. Now this, it was kind of like Etsy was my salary in mm -hmm. a way. And that was my, um, my income that was sort of fixed in a way. I always knew I was going to make a certain amount. And then that was just gone. So yeah. I started taking every single order that came through the door. Um, Boise has always had wide open arms for, for me, which has been amazing. And women were just literally knocking on my door to get dresses. And I was so grateful because I made, I went back to the beginning where I didn't know what I was doing. Mm -hmm. And I thought I've never made this before, but I will figure it out. Coming off of making a dress that I'd made literally 5,000 times and now transitioning to I have to sew things I've never done before in three days <laughs> and, and find the fabric and do all these fittings. And it was all this in-person um, 
interaction that I hadn't done before because yeah. everything up to that point had been virtual. Yeah. So, yeah. How did you get people knocking on your door? Were you, did you have a network that you reached out to? I mean, you know, business owners can open a storefront mm-hmm. and, you know, hang their shingle and put up a website, mm-hmm. but doesn't mean anyone's going to knock on your door or right. go to your website. How did you get people to you? I don't want to, I don't want to say this again, but it just happened. <laughs> It's, Damn it! <laughs> I know. I will say I did have a, a good Facebook presence. It was a lot of word of mouth. Um, women are like hunters when it comes to fashion. Okay. And I think that was what was going on. So up to that point, I, st- I already had my storefront, but I kept my door locked because I was always working. <laughs> so I had to work only by appointment because I was the only person there. So, which is the worst possible way to run your business, but I was the only one there. So I had to sew. And so I'd work by appointment. So I was, I I should say, I was taking some clients. And then it's almost like a woman, one of my clients would show up at an event in one of my gowns and everybody else is like, where did you get that? And that was a cool thing because it started this really strong network that um, if you could get in to see me, (laughs) you'd get addressed. But I was pretty hard to get a hold of. Yeah, so you had a few things going for you. One, the, the quality of your products was exceptional like it was making heads turn and so like gary v gary vaynerchuk always says right the market will tell you yes you know the market is the ultimate the market never lies right Mm -hmm. so if you're if you're doing something right the market will tell you by making sales or getting referrals or having people knock on your door or reach out to you so i always like the way that he put that so you can obviously you know be proud that you were putting out a quality product that yeah. people were wanting to refer to which is yeah. incredible i shouldn't i shouldn't self-deprecate so much i was always honing my skills as i was sewing infinity dresses too they were kind of um giving me that springboard to be able to design things i wanted to design mm-hmm. so i was still making all these really cool pieces throughout the years but um i just didn't know that boise had that clientele that they wanted special event gowns or they wanted these really cool pieces that normally would go on a runway and so i was very excited that um that business just took off which is nice it was was perfect timing and very grateful for that so you were were you turning business away at some points yeah i i think there were some deadlines that were just too tight um So my question to you would be, would be interesting. Turning business away, I'm sure it would be tough, you know, Mm -hmm. but did you have thoughts of having an apprentice or having somebody come in and help? Because if you're leaving something on the table and, you know, either you're leaving money on the table or potential growth, Mm -hmm. you know, did you have thoughts about that? We're like, gosh, I can't, this isn't turning. Plus you also had scarcity, which is Mm -hmm. like if they, if people could get to you, they would feel lucky. Like, right. okay, I got to Megan. You know, she's going to make me my dress. You know, this is great. Thank God. You know, and you're 12 weeks out or wherever, whatever you were, you know, but did you feel like there was more there and that if you didn't bring somebody else in, you know, you were limiting yourself or were you just comfortable in that space? I tried several times to bring on an apprentice, but the disadvantage to not going the traditional route of learning and going to school for something is I didn't know how to teach somebody the process that I had come up with. I mean, it wasn't a recipe. It was just a feel. And I did a lot of my designs by feel. And that's a, that's a really common thread, no pun intended, but feeling good in in my gowns was what I always wanted like I I knew I wanted to have this kind of flair and glamour without feeling uh constricted and 
I always call it being spanked because when you're wearing all these undergarments that are super constricting, it's not fun. Yeah. You don't enjoy that feeling. So I wanted people to enjoy the gowns as well as feel super glamorous in them. And that's a really hard thing to, to teach somebody I'd because imagine. it's really non-traditional yeah. the way that I sew. So I was also a little hesitant because I didn't really have a, a process. Yeah. So trying to teach somebody that was... <laughs> I know the I only know. Th- the only thing I can equate that to is like I'm very linear in the way that I think and I need a process and mm-hmm. so like my wife and I talk about it all the time when she makes like she's a great cook and so when she's making something like she's not measuring you know mm-hmm. she's just mm-hmm. pinch of this and this yeah. and she's just and it comes out and it's it's wonderful mm-hmm. and I need a recipe mm-hmm. and like if I don't have the right you know quarter teaspoon if I can't find the spoon I'm freaking out I'm like how am I supposed to get a quarter <laughs> teaspoon if I can't find the quarter teaspoon I'm very so I. That's the best thing. That's the best way I can. I cook like your wife. I don't like. I don't like recipes. (laughs) I don't like patterns. Um, Yeah. Let me. um, Let's go back to Project Runway because there's a fun story there. You said that you know back in the day um, you had some exposure. I think you had been invited to Mm -hmm. to participate, and you know you declined a few times. So talk me through. Tell me your tell me your Project Runway story because I think it's a good one. Project the Project Runway non story almost. it was. It is interesting because I realized this morning that Project Runway, watching Project Runway, was what kind of started my creative juices flowing back in the day in Texas. And then as my presence on Etsy got bigger, because I was one of the bigger shops on Etsy for a while, um, they started reaching out to me, the producers of Project Runway, over the years. Every year, they would reach out and ask me to audition. And I would just never even respond. <laughs> oh I didn't. I thought, no, there's no way. I'm Why? Gonna, a, I had no time because um, selling all those dresses means I now have to make all those dresses. And so I never had time in my head. I was the one-man show. So I didn't have time. And also, I didn't want to broadcast the fact that I had not gone to school for it. And maybe that would damage my business. Mm-hmm. I didn't know. I didn't know. Um, yeah. I thought maybe people would think I was less legitimate because I hadn't gotten a degree in it. Yeah. Uh, so I was really embarrassed by that. A lot of the times, I didn't, I, I didn't make that a big uh, talking point generally. Sure. So the last thing I wanted to do was go on TV and tell everybody. Yeah. I just figured this out. <laughs> I hope you like it, you know. And that was so that was a hesitation. I never took myself seriously enough to go on that show. Yeah. And then so that that probably all started in 2011, maybe is the first time they reached out. And literally every year, I'd get an email. Oh my God, here's that damn Project Runway email again. So in 2017, when, uh, I know it was 2018. So it was after I'd gotten through the year where everything fell apart. um, And I was rebuilding and I was really feeling more confident in my design skills. Because that year of just taking everything that came into my store, I would joke this is like my own private project runway because yeah. I'm like every day I feel like I'm telling myself just make it work yeah. you know and I loved that because it was an inspiration to use what you can be resourceful um, you figure out the problems if you don't have the resources there's got to be another alternative and uh, I loved I loved how fast I was being um, forced to work love hate fast yeah. but um, I was having to make these gowns in like two days Somebody would come in, I need a gown for a Saturday. And I would say, yes, absolutely. Yeah. I can do it. Why not? Yeah. You know, and it was, it was this rush of just like, yes, I can do that. So I started feeling more confident in the fact that I knew I could sew quickly and do it well. And people were just loving it. Mm-hmm. So 
uh, finally, this Project Runway producer just hounded me. I mean, he got my... Because I had a storefront now, so now yeah. he had my phone number yep. <laughs> in addition to my email, which is easier to ignore. And he called a couple times, and they finally got me on the phone just one random afternoon, and he was like, oh my gosh, <laughs> you're actually a person. <laughs> He's like, we're, we're doing auditions in Portland this, this weekend or the next weekend, I think. Um, come up, and we'll put you in front of the producers. And I said, I don't think so. I don't have time. Mm-hmm. I mean, again, I'm working around the clock. Yeah. And he's like, take it seriously. He's like, this is a big deal. We've been watching you. We've seen what you're doing. We like what you're doing. Um, we've d- they knew all about me. They had done all this research. He knew I was, had been a rodeo queen. I was like, wow, that's yeah, flattering. And doing their work. Yeah, I, I thought that's really cool. So his name was Ty, and he somehow convinced me to go to Portland. And I had just finished this huge dress order, like an 80 some odd dress order. Oh my God. And we were working literally all night. I had a, I had a friend helping me. So, um, at the time and yeah, just getting this order done. And so finally I said, okay, let's go. So a good girlfriend of mine that is in fashion, she's a model and owns a modeling agency. Tina came with me just at the last second. Yeah. She was like, can I come? I said, sure. Yeah. And she knows so much about the industry, so she was a great uh, resource. We drove to Portland, and I think I had to bring five pieces to show the judges. Mm-hmm. And I got there. They they gave me my time slot. I walked right in. Found out later that people had been submitting tapes and auditions for years <laughs> to get to get on this, just to get the in front of the judges. Yeah. And um, I was like, oh, that's that's pretty interesting that they were reaching They're out to me to bring you, me to, yeah. to come on. And so I had a great interview with the judges. They were, I don't know why they loved my, what I was doing. I was la- making them laugh. I have no idea why they were laughing, but um, I guess I'm funny sometimes. <laughs> and funny. Uh, so that they loved it. They loved everything I was doing, and uh, gave me they gave me a little homework assignment based on one of the pieces I had showed them. They said, okay, so who's your audience for this gown? And so they they would ask. And I said, well, if I were selling this, I mean, I made this for a specific person, but if I was doing this again, I would say I would make this a jacket and it would be like Kylie Jenner in Paris. They loved it. They love stuff like that. And then so they said, okay, tomorrow you're coming back and you'll do the on in, uh, on-camera interview. Mm-hmm. So I brought a sketch of the jacket to the interview the next day and they were like, you were serious. That's so cool. <laughs> so they're like, you're in. We love you. We want, we're going to have a rodeo queen on the show. Oh, my God. So then that the on air or the on camera interview went really well too. And then they said, Okay, next step is you're going to either LA or New York to meet the show producers and we'll email you in a couple weeks. And yeah, that was it. What did that, that feel like? It was amazing. Yeah. I felt like I can't believe that people in the industry and like the the judges are comprised of people who are not only uh, designers, but also people that have competed on Project Runway. And so they know what it takes to go through that process. And so they, they really kind of put you through the ringer in those interviews to ask, how will you handle this? How will yeah. you do this? I'm like, that's my life. Right, right, right now my doing. life is scarcity and no time <laughs> and figuring things out with adversity. So, um, yeah, I thought, I thought it was actually pretty exciting at the time. And um, about a week later... I was just on this high. I just remember driving home thinking, I can't believe I actually did that. I'm so glad I actually faced my fears and did that because it just gave me this huge boost of confidence that 
industry professionals were closely inspecting garments I had made yeah. and praising me for them. And I thought I've never had this kind of validation. Yeah. So that was really interesting. It was really neat. And then, and then nothing. And, and, and <laughs> then then uh, the week, the week after that, uh, Tim Gunn and Heidi Klum left project runway and started their own show. So everything went on a freeze oh. for about six or eight months. Yeah. And they did eventually contact me back, but, uh, I was pregnant with our daughter. So, I thought, no, time that that time has passed. Yeah, what a great experience, though. It's amazing. What did it do for you? I know that, I know that you suffer from imposter syndrome. Like mm-hmm. it's not uncommon. Like we all do. Um, but I would imagine that this experience really helped you see that your skills and the quality of your work and everything, you know, had been validated. Mm-hmm. And so, what was it like? How did that help you moving? forward did you get to put some of that to rest were you like all right i finally like i'm like almost like you've like you've made it but like internally Mm -hmm. you must have felt you know by some of the highest standards that you're measured by Mm -hmm. by the that you were accepted into that community Mm -hmm. you know officially you know was it what was that like it was it was like finally hearing the people around me who'd always been telling me that at the time my husband at the time, my boyfriend, was always telling me, you know, no, you are a designer. You are doing this. This is who you are. And um, he actually is the one that convinced me ultimately to go to Portland. He literally yeah. said, if you don't go, I will not talk to you anymore. <laughs> he goes, if you waste this opportunity, yeah, I will I will literally done. stop talking yeah. to you. Because he's like, what an opportunity. And you're not seeing it as that. You're seeing it as a uh, somebody trying to out you. Right. Um, and so the, the outcome was perfect because I said, you're absolutely right. You know, this, it was the validation I needed and yeah, to be seen by peers as a designer and as a legitimate business. And I mean, I was running now more on confidence in my skills and less fear and anxiety. So, and it helps, it helps to be around people that are also pursuing those things. Nick Absolutely. has always been an amazing mentor to me in my business from day one. Yeah. He was, I think he was more interested in my business than me in the beginning. I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> he was like, what? This is fascinating. What yeah, are you doing? <laughs> you guys make a good team. <laughs> I agree. Um, well, last thing I'm curious on, like, what's next? But I also want to talk about, like, if you were affected by COVID. It's kind of a common thread that I'm trying to weave through this round of interviews because COVID mm-hmm. affected businesses in different ways mm-hmm. and i wanted to you just uh, how was what was covid like for you i hate to say this covid was the best yeah. it was crazy because we were closed already i was already closed in my shop um i was taking appointments randomly but i was on maternity leave with our daughter and so about six months after is when COVID hit. So she was six months old. I was just getting ready to go back to, to the shop full time. Um, she went with me all the time. And then uh, COVID hit, so the shop was closed. And uh, randomly, my sister-in-law asked me to make her some masks because she was in the medical field. Right. And so that's, again, It's a, it was like a repeat of how it started. Is She posted it on Facebook, and then people started asking me for more. Can yeah. you make me a mask? Can you make me a mask? Can you do it in black? Can you make me a skull mask? You know, or I'm teaching kids and I want, I want a rainbow, something that doesn't look scary. Yeah. And so we started just making these custom masks. And within probably a week, 
I mean, again, thank God for Nick and his entrepreneurial brain because he was like, we can actually scale this a little bit easier. Mm -hmm. And so having that teamwork was nice. So we put it on Etsy, put some masks on Etsy, and it went crazy. So I had another big wave. And it was funny because I just remembered kind of chuckling to myself, like, here's another wave. (laughs) Right. We're going to do it. So we ended up making about a thousand masks in one month. And all that goes along with that, sourcing the, the fabrics when everybody was sold out. So we had people giving us fabric to make masks with. Yeah. We had, we learned that you could make filters out of um, like air filters that you buy at Fred Meyer or, right. or Home Depot. So Nick was outsourcing those things, and um, and we were cutting out these <laughs> masks by the hundreds. Just figuring it out, right? Just figuring it out. Yeah, exactly. So we pivoted again. I mean, that was another thing. It was we pivoted. Ended up making a fair. Um, amount on masks donated a lot of masks and uh then the wave was over so it's it was kind of nice to be already set up at that point and i'd already experienced it so i was like okay we go all in for six weeks (laughs) right and then strike while the iron's hot and that helps us to have some money to coast for the rest of the year well and you are just on the cusp of starting something Mm -hmm. brand new for Mm -hmm. your business tell me a little bit about what what's happening now if you can, yeah, if you want to. Absolutely. Um, pretty much like you were saying earlier, you know, I was turning business away because I couldn't keep up. Um, I was fast. I will say I can sew quickly and I can make a garment pretty quickly, but I didn't want to turn people away. And it was hard for me when somebody would come in and need something for like that weekend and I didn't have anything. And I, I would always hit this wall in my head like I could do it. But I really need to sleep. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so uh, sometimes I will take those orders. But um, again, this is another thing where Nick in his business mind, and he's a problem solver too. So he was like, there's got to be a way to find a manufacturer who will make your designs. And I said, there isn't. There's just this barrier to entry is huge because you have to place gigantic orders. Mm-hmm. I wasn't set up to do that. And also my designs are in my head primarily I didn't have um, that structure. Mm -hmm. So we've spent the last two years. We found, we actually found a manufacturer who just started in Arizona that does um, low, low to no minimum order quantities. And then a fashion incubator that takes people like me, my designs and gets them ready for production. So that's been about a year and a half process. I sent them all my greatest hits of designs and I've been back and forth to Phoenix several times and worked with them. So now all of my patterns are um, actually traditional. How does, how does that feel? <laughs> it feels really good. <laughs> good. Yeah, I have. Um, it's it's very interesting. We've made a, a ton of pieces that are, um, like I said, my greatest hits, the pieces that fit the women the best, that are super flattering on a variety of body types, uh, easy to wear. So we have, we've split it up between what I call my staples and my statements. Mm-hmm. So the staples are the pieces that you can wear to the office and that can actually go day to night. Um, they're fun little print dresses, bodycon kind of style dresses. Some have sleeves, some are with sashes. They just have various um, little design elements that kind of make them unique. And the patterns is what I'm really in love with, like all the fabrics I'm always crazy about. Um, I'm very particular about my fabric, so it's good. I make sure it doesn't wrinkle so you can spend all day in meetings and still look great at the end of the day. And then the statement pieces are a little bit more dramatic where you take more risks and things like floor-length sleeves and you know sequins and embellishments and things like that. So we're still doing um, a variety of things, but I wanted to have a shop full of ready-to-wear. 
Because it you, just seemed like we need that here. So where are you in the process? We are at the ordering process. So I'm waiting for the go-ahead on the pieces that I've submitted and all the fabrics getting sourced. It's a lot. It's a combination of about 100 different decisions that went into this yeah. one order. And we finally have finished that, and now we're just waiting on the timeline. So I'm hoping, fingers crossed, to get our first shipment in December. Wow. So hopefully before the holidays. So people will be able to go online and mm-hmm. We'll have point, online point sales, and, and we will have in-store sales, and we're going to have a... I think we'll have a grand opening event. Awesome. Yeah. Well, my gosh, Megan, what a great story. <laughs> oh my gosh. I, um, thank you. Thank you for coming on. I mean, I Absolutely. think your story is incredible. Every little piece, um, is inspirational. I mean, I wanted to tell all of that because mm-hmm. it just builds and builds and builds and builds. And like I said earlier, all the skills and experiences that you have collected mm-hmm. in different industries have led you to where you are today. And the fact that you continue to, to, persevere and figure things out on your own align yourself with people that could be helpful you've battled some fears that you stared down mm-hmm. and um you, you've made it through you become more confident now you're scaling and you're continuing to figure out like who knows what your business is, is going to look like in three or four years yeah. but um what a great story um you should really be proud of yourself Thank so you. yeah so i appreciate you coming on and Absolutely. sharing with me and Thanks for having me. Uh, how can people find you um, they can, <laughs> we do, we do have stores with a open door now. So we're open from uh, 11 to seven Wednesday through Saturday okay. and at our store and online Rooney Mako on Instagram, Facebook, Etsy. We still have a presence on Etsy. That's, uh, we will still be selling for a short time until we transition to a, a web store. Awesome. So yeah, they can, if, if you want to come see us, we have a, we have a lot of pieces in store right now too. So yeah, come try on right. it's the holidays. So everybody's getting their special event gowns. Yep. All right. Well, thanks for sharing. Thanks, Matt. All right. Take care. Well, there you go. Thank you so much, Megan, for coming on and sharing your story. Really enjoyed getting to know you a little bit. And it's just, a, it's just a great story. Thank you so much. I know it's going to help a lot of people. My name is Matt. This is None of My Business. You can find me all over the place. I'm really active on LinkedIn. I'm on Twitter and Instagram at Deets Agency. You can find me at DeetsAgency.com. And uh, if you know anybody that's got a story that's worth sharing that's here in Idaho, hook me up. I'm happy to sit down and meet with them. I think we all need to learn from each other. So uh, I really appreciate you listening. Thank you so much. Keep up the good work. Yeah.